All right, we are here with David Van Stralen. He was currently in Paris. So we're not doing the video. We were just doing audio. Hopefully we will we'll get a good recording on this. So Dr. Van Stralen was a one-time medic, fire guy back in the 70s, uh, potentially hanging out with Johnny and Roy from emergency, then becoming a physician uh, who is out of the West Coast right now and a longtime HRO guru. What we're going to talk about today was was even with David's early work within HRO and how that expanded and how it kind of evolved. Uh, I think Dave, uh, although practices HRO and its totality, it definitely dives more specific into the neuropsychology uh, of things than, than you hear a lot of other people talking about. He also runs uh, highreliability.org. I think that's high-reliability.org and is a member of the San Bernardino group. I'm not sure if the San Bernardino group is uh, has any gang affiliation to the Crips or Bloods, but we'll probably discuss that at some point. So we're going to do a multi-point series on HROs, looking at what is an HRO, who uses HROs. Uh, there's groups out there from nuclear power generation plants to naval aircraft carriers, chemical production plants, emergency rooms, ICUs, wildland firefighting crews. The list goes, goes kind of on and on. Uh, what was the evolution of HROs? What are the five principles that most people have probably heard about HROs and what they are they really? And how do you effectively apply them and how HROs can improve your system, whether that's a team, emergency room, an organization, and allow you to operate within, within chaos or probably more specifically ambiguity. So starting off, David, give us a quick background on yourself without the HRO influx. Yeah, what I uh, started with was in the early 70s, uh, working my way through school in the ambulance. And at the time, there's quite a few guys that had been in ambulance work for 20 to 30 years. Some came out of World War II Korea. We had quite a few of the Vietnam vets. Some were medics. So they taught me how to do ambulance work, which was different from what I heard others do. These guys are very knowledgeable, very organized, very structured. Some had been in the Watts riots, <clears throat> major fires. I then went on to uh, Los Angeles Fire Department. And unlike uh, Johnny and Roy, as, as he mentioned, uh, we were L.A. City. Fire, And that was a compilation of a previous service from the Central Receiving Hospital where they either worked out of the hospital with the nurse and doctor and they responded to the field, or they worked in the police stations in South Los Angeles or East L.A., and they responded to the field from the police stations. So they were a blend of uh, nursing and medical care inside the ED, ambulance work in the field, and law enforcement in uh, high-gang areas. The, uh, they went on to the fire department <clears throat> around the time I came on. So we got blended into the fire department at that point. So my background was a combination of a law enforcement, fire, ambulance, and hospital work. Now, when I went to medical school, and I was one of the early medics who had become a physician, uh, I, I noticed that my approach was not well received. And I, I received quite a bit of criticism from it, to the point that I actually had to keep my mouth shut that I'd been a medic although people did find out through various ways. And I wanted to find out what it was that made the guys who trained me, World War II vets, Korean combat vets and Vietnam War vets, and veterans from major fires and crime scenes, what made them right. But the other part was what made the uh, physicians and nurses wrong. And most critical was, was what made the physicians and nurses think they were uh, right. And that led me into studying all the different sciences necessary to uh, to get a grasp on this over the years. Then when I set up a PETA ICU with Ron Perkin, and he was a formal naval aviator from the Vietnam War, 
and we used our, our combined approach to create this pediatric ICU from scratch. Uh, Carney Roberts out of Berkeley heard about us and uh, over a few month period met us, talked to me and said, what you guys are doing is what's called HRO, High Reliability Organization, which I'd never heard of, but she said that we met the criteria and over the uh, discussions with academics since then, I, I learned that we did meet the criteria, which is important because HRO did not come from academics. It came um, from the organizational, uh, operational part came from people in the field who worked at a high-risk organizations where men died. Uh, it could have easily been uh, a buddy of yours or you. The academics studied it and codified it, gave some science to it and structure which we needed. Otherwise, it was simply opinion. And that's the importance of the academics' contribution to HRO. But we don't want to get away from the fact that it came out of the field, um, out of that sense of vulnerability that uh, your next move could hurt you seriously or your partner. Uh, that, that's a good point. So when we're talking about kind of the evolution of that from its early stages, you brought up Roberts and 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 Wyke and Sutcliffe, who wrote wrote a book called Managing the Unexpected, which probably a lot of people have have heard of, or in, and in some cases a lot of people reference as far as setting up their HRO systems within their their organizations. But there was a paper written in I believe 1984 from Perot, Normal Accidents, Living with High-Risk Technologies, and kind of presented criteria where mistakes are made, where errors are made. And he talked about certain, I guess, variables within these communities, like hyper-complexity, tight coupling, uh, hierarchical differentiation, a lot of different decision makers in, in a complex communication network, all these things leading to these errors that, that occur. And so what he kind of talked about was really an unhealthy response within an unhealthy environment where HRO moved beyond that to, to more of a, a healthy response in an unhealthy environment. Would that be somewhat accurate? Yeah, that would be. And, and what Perot had done was really quite innovative. <clears throat> they had Three Mile Island had occurred. People wanted to find out what went wrong. And they could understand the technology. But about this time, you were looking at some work by, uh, for example, Jens Rasmussen, who was saying that technology and human interactions are really like an ecological system. They interact at different levels. And it's important to understand Rasmussen's work because he said that, that it's rule-based system, skill-based, and knowledge-based. Well, the, the skill-based system is what you learn to begin with, and that should become automatic so you don't have to think about it, your routine things. Then you go into a rule-based system where you have a rule for those things you don't see very often. The beauty of that approach description that, that Rasmussen had was that the rules in your skill should become so automatic that when you encounter something completely novel, you go into a knowledge-based system and you can think. Unfortunately, for most programs, they stop at the, at the rule-based system, and we come up with rules. In fact, James Reason went on and, and took Rasmussen's work and, and used that as a basis for his error work. He's the Swiss cheese man, and he said that you have, for example, rule-based error. And that's the strong but wrong rule. The people who follow rule even though it's, it's wrong. Well, about the same time, Perot is studying Three Mile Island and said this technology is complex, maybe too complex even for Rasmussen's work. And we've got to learn to either live with these hazards, accept the risk and death and disaster, or get rid of the technology. And that became um, accidents, in fact, were normal. They were normal. They were going to happen. And that was called normal accident theory. Todd Laporte had also studied Three Mile Island. He was a sociologist and by training also as well as, as Perot. 
the difference was that he was he came out of the Marine Corps as an infantry officer and a naval avi- a marine aviator. He studied sociology and complex organizations and wrote one of the first books in the field. And when he studied organizations, what the high reliability organizing group out of Berkeley he helped create, and they studied an aircraft carrier and found that you can have a very complex system. They can have these social, technical interactions and be successful. And Carlene Roberts led that group along with Todd Laporte, the High Reliability Organization Project. They were invited by Captain Tom Mercer, retired as two-star admiral. And he wanted to understand better his crew and help his crew perform better. He also wanted to help set up a master's degree program for his officers to help them advance. Uh, They came in and studied his ship. Uh, focusing more on the flight deck, and, and that's where they started studying HROs better. They then went on to nuclear power plants, the uh, electrical grid system for electrical electricity distribution in California, and the FAA flight controllers, and found that there were groups that performed at a very high level despite all the makings of disaster which was counter to Perot. So you could say that Perot's limitation was he did not know how to do it, therefore he thought it could not be done, whereas Todd Laporte's group, Todd coming from a different operational background, knew that it could be done. And you're going to encounter this a lot when you work with people in in the field. They're going to think it can't be done, and in reality what they're telling you is they don't know how to do it. And this is very common, I, I encounter it. People telling me you can't do this, and, and they can't... It, explain why I can't do it, but it turns out they simply don't know how. This is an important concept that Carl Weick had created in the early 70s, and I've talked to Carl about this, that it should be more published. He calls it enactment, and in this scenario, you might have, say, a couple of us don't know how to do something, we're not sure it's safe, so we say don't do it, and then a third person joins us, and we tell them, yeah, don't do that because it's unsafe. And a fourth or fifth person, pretty soon it shifts from I don't know how to do it to don't do it, it's unsafe, to a moral issue. And then along comes someone uh, new and says, well, let's do it. And we're all saying, no, you can't. And he tries it, and it's a moral issue. Now he's, he's horrible, um, and he's successful. Or if he fails trying to figure it out, we exclude him. And that's enactment. So we actually can create a culture that says you can't do something and shifting that to a moral uh, issue and we don't act, we don't engage. The other part of enactment that Carl, uh, we felt left out, probably because he wasn't aware of it, is engagement. And any of you in public safety or military know that you teach a rookie, uh, the first thing to do is engage the situation. It may be observation, it may be call for help, but you engage. And that takes training and support for someone to do that because that's where you make your most mistakes because you don't know what to do. You don't know what's going to work. And so from your standpoint of those of you in public safety or military, engagement is, is you can look at as the first step in enactment. In enactment, you create change in the organization environment. And I like what a South African mining engineer who is a expert on HRO said he watched a lion stand up in the veldt once and the whole environment changed the animals changed posture they got quieter the birds flew he says an animal a lion that stands up changes the environment he says that's what HRO is a lion in the zoo is limp in, in the corner somewhere 
And, and so, yes, yeah, powerful and it looks attractive, but it's not changing the environment. And so what we do in HRO is we change the environment. And to do that, you have to engage it, you have to enact it, you have to create a new environment. And that portion is left out in a lot of discussions of HRO. And it's really, you know, before we kind of dive into some of the structure that, that people may or may not have heard of before in HRO with, with the various principles and things like that, it's, it's really an informed culture, right? It's a, it's a cultural change throughout your organization that looks at viewing things much different than, than most of us do, especially error, probably especially errors and things like that. It's a cycle. And, and the way it cycles, kind of circular, is that I and my organization will change the environment. That's what we do. We have a hostile environment. How does an organization survive a hostile environment? One is we change the environment. Now, if we can't change the environment, error or we've made something insurmountable, then we have to learn. And that learning changes us. And that's this, this, this cycle of lessons learned, change the environment, lessons learned, change the environment. So error in that sense, is something that's informative that tells you where your weak spots are. And I'd rather have an error in a weak area before it gets big. So if I can catch my errors early, that becomes my lessons learned. That's my learning. I strengthen the organization, and then I can change the environment better. And that's that cycle we have moving on, that circular movement. Change the environment, change ourselves. Change the environment, change ourselves. And I think when, when you brought up being able to catch that early warning or that fire before it becomes big or out of control or sucker punches you, I think that's where some of the root of the problems are. Is some people may view that emerging fire or that small problem or that near miss as they actually had a, a good system in place and that's why they didn't get nailed on that one. When in reality, it could be an early warning system that they need to actually address. Yeah, that's, that's important. It's, it's like for the firefighters if they have a, a 10,000 acre fire. Would it have been a 5,000-acre fire if you did better? Or because you did so well, it, it was 10,000, but it could have been 20,000. When I had patients ask me about the chance of their child living, what's the survival, percent survival? Everybody wanted a percent. Because I don't look at it that way. I said, if your child has a 20% chance of, of survival, my job isn't to tell you it's 20%. My job is to make it 30. And once I've made it 30%, my job is to make it 40. So... That's kind of the approach, is the dynamic approach, but the importance of that outlier, that early herald, is that it differentiates the reasoning and thinking of somebody who is HRO at the core versus those who are selling a product or who just don't quite get it. And let's take that outlier. A normal distribution, the outlier could be three, four, five standard deviations. Six Sigma loves to talk about six standard deviations because that was the number that Motorola found they had the fewest complaints on for the radios. Now, in, its, in, in that system of standard deviation, you have probability and statistics. Probability is the future, what's going to happen, and statistics is the past, what did happen and describe what, what the situation is. In that, you'll find that probabilities are additive. And that's how that system forms. Now, there's another system we look at where it feeds on itself. For example, uh, if, if small cities, there's far more small cities than large cities. And why is that? There's no average city size. There's no mean size where there's just as many big cities as small cities, and it peters out just like the normal distribution on both sides. It doesn't occur. And that was discovered by um, uh, Pareto when he looked at wealth, not income, but wealth how much people own. They also found that for the Richter scale. They found that for uh, per capita deaths in war in the 30s. 
there's a number of, of these distributions. And in those, the probability is multiplied by together. And that's the one where you've seen that curve from kind of a scooped out curve. The 80-20 rule right. Uh, right. is there. That's the Pareto curve. What that's important is that the outlier, that one of, can be either an early herald of something bad. Because remember, all bad things start off as mundane. Something was picked up and it was ignored. That's the early herald. The second thing it can do is it can tell you what system is, is possible in, in your program. For example, I was talking to the, the head of the NTSB, and he's quite concerned because of the Air France crash. And one interpretation of it is that so many things happen on Air France over the, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, lots of three ways to measure the airspeed, the pitot tubes, having the captain off the flight deck, having two people interpreting the information differently. So one thought they should go faster, one thought they should go slower. Um, not flying having experienced flying a plane at cruising altitude, which is illegal, so they don't train on it. You have to use um, autopilot at cruising altitude because it's so hard to fly at that level. So many random things went on, it probably won't happen again. Well, the NTSB chairman's view was that if it happened once, that's a signal it can happen again. That's that, that outlier. It shows what's possible. Number two, it shows that if it happens again, it'll be worse. And so those of us who think in that terms of an HRO, when we see that outlier, we see that rare event, we see that subtle sign, we're looking at that and saying, is this an early herald of something's going to get worse? Or is this something bad? This an indication of what could happen in my system. That's how we look at the outlier. We do not let our guard down. That's where we look. And the, the sad part is that's the mundane stuff, the stuff no one wants to look at. They want to interpret. They want to disregard it. They want to interpret it as something minor because um, they don't have to, they can excuse it because that's where the complexity is. I don't want complexity. I'm going to excuse it. And they would rather do what's the probability of this happening? What's the uh, statistics of it? The way I would phrase it is we in high reliability look at the possibility, what could happen, what's possible to happen, and that's the ease it'll happen. Whereas those who are, I would say, are not such high reliability people, they look at it as such a low probability, let's ignore it. Right, which is kind of the, the ludic fallacy of, of uh, gaming, rolling the dice, and it probably won't happen again, so we'll, we will sweep it under the rug and let it go. Real quick, with the, I think one interesting aspect of this, with what you kind of talked about, uh, was NASA looking at even the tile issue before, and I believe NASA had become HRO, is that correct? Well, NASA was moving towards it. Uh, I, I talked to somebody somewhat peripherally involved in the, in the 60s and 70s, and they said that NASA probably was not such HRO in the Mercury program at first because they were taking risks with the pilots. And they, they were, the guys tended to be Navy pilots. And it wasn't until Gemini when they had some of the, the fires that occurred and the dangers occurred that the, the astronauts who were uh, test pilots, basically, became more involved in the program because they had something at stake, their lives. And that moved NASA towards a, a HRO system. It started to devolve because uh, what I found in the intensive care unit when we, we were creating it, we had these cycles of bad things happen. We would learn how to do things better. We'd be more careful. And then we'd have a long period of no deaths, either because we just had a period of no seriously ill children or because we became good. And that actually developed into a complacency. I'm good, so I don't need to look any further. And it was very difficult to get people to pay attention because they always remember their successes. 
And then somebody would die and we felt it was preventable. It took several of those. The first one, they would say, well, that wasn't my fault that someone else did it. That was a bad nurse or bad doctor. The patient should have come in sooner. Um, and we have to have several of those. Kind of like uh, what was said is you have, sometimes you have to fall apart to fall together. And NASA found that. They became successful, complacent. People promoted up through a system and they'd forgotten that, that uh, uh, social knowledge of, of disasters. They forgot that any one small person could be a part of it. And the tile uh, would come off. And they looked at their successes. They said, well, it was okay. So they kept moving that. So two things. They, they do talk about the normalization of deviance, but also there's a thing that came out of ocean research and fisheries research um, of a reset baseline. And whenever we start in a, a program or hired on, that becomes our baseline. So in fisheries research, they found that when you were uh, a new ocean uh, biologist, that became your baseline of what the fisheries should be. And if you look backwards, you'll find that fisheries has decreased over one or 200 years. Well, the same thing happens in any organization. Somebody gets hired in, it's already safe, and that's their baseline. And so when you talk about people dying, they say, oh, yeah, there's someone dies every three years. When I came on the L.A. fire... Uh, the year before, three men died when a wall collapsed. Another firefighter died a, a year after I came on. A cop died during um, in my district during. A, and actually, I responded to that call. And now, when I talk to the people with firefighter deaths or law enforcement deaths, a lot of times they heard about it um, from somewhere else. So that's the reset baseline about what danger is, and how dangerous your job is, and how to be careful. Um, the same thing happened in NASA. Uh, you can see that the reset baseline, the normalization of deviance, where Nothing happened, so let's keep moving on. We're a safe organization, but we don't know why we're safe. And before you knew it, it got out of hand, and that was not a normal distribution. That was the uh, power distribution, or what's called a Pareto curve. Like, so, yeah, and, and with that NASA, if I'm not mistaken, they, they had tile issues on previous launches, and because there was no catastrophic issue, they just kind of said that was sort of normal. It could be normal. It became normal. They, and then next thing you know, yes. you know, a few missions later, the entire shuttle blows up. That's right. Okay. Uh, so when you look at it, so before we kind of dive into the structure of it, HRO kind of helps provide, if you will, a real-time quality assurance within your system. And if that system is, you know, comparatively speaking to like the engine of your car, uh, all those things interact with one another. And so HRO kind of provides a cultural capability within there, applying certain principles that help that, help that organization, help that system move through the extremes, which we typically, those things outside the bell curve, the black swans or the outliers or whatever you want to call them, and help you manage those with more resiliency, more reliability. Yeah, uh, getting to the um, tight coupling, which uh, Perot talks about and is commonly discussed in business schools, what you're talking about is that if I do anything, it's going to affect the people around me. And so tight coupling is actually the norm for people working in high-risk organizations, um, we don't use that phrase tight coupling. Basically, we're here to support each other. Uh, for example, when a kid said he was going to shoot me, um, we didn't have handy talkies or radios. There's two of us. So I, I called on the phone to the dispatcher and said, you know, the kid said he's going to shoot me. He said, well, we'll get the help you need. I hung up, and he got the help we need. We had uh, law enforcement, fire chief, responded, battalion chief. We had the engine company and helicopter because um, all closely linked on that. Uh, whereas medicine tends to be more loosely coupled. So when I had this, a kid who was deteriorating, the, the surgical group that was supposed to respond kept telling me how, the reasons why it was not an emergency because these, there was no coupling in here. Um, they didn't feel connected. 
So the tight coupling is what we're used to, and there are a lot of organizations that aren't used to that. Now, I asked Bob B., who's an engineer out of Berkeley, and he studied every major industrial disaster since Piper Alpha in the North Sea. He was the one who helped develop, actually, major um, investigator for what caused the levees to fail in, in New Orleans during Katrina. And I asked him, I said, the problem I have with proactive and reactive approaches is that proactive doesn't help me when I'm in a program. I, I don't know what's happening, so I don't know what to call upon. You know, I, I don't, people talk about having the slides in their slide set. And I don't have that slide. What do I do? And reactive doesn't work because it's over now. And yeah, I want to learn. There's so many things happen. I can't recall everything. And he said, well, really what you're doing is, is it's interactive, real-time risk assessment and management. And I think that that's the key for those of us who are in operational. You can be in HRO and not be in that operational mode. I want to talk about that. But the integrative real-time risk assessment management, um, the, in the interactive real-time risk assessment management is that you're interacting with the environment. You're interacting with the scene. In fact, we talk about the fact when you enter the environment, you become part of the problem. Not because you're causing problems, because now you need to be supported. Everything you do changes the environment and changes the situation. The people around you respond to you, even the way you stand or look at them. If you're uh, resuscitating a patient, when you treat, when you don't treat, when you observe, the people around you see that. If you're alone, it's still that interaction. So it's very interactive. And it's in real time, which means you can't take a pause. There are times you can, but there are times when you cannot take a pause. You have to continually interact. And it's all that real time, and you're assessing risk, and you're managing it as you, as you move on. And that's an important aspect of it. Now, I'm going to split HROs into to two somewhat uh, disparate groups. There's the one where... If you're a garrison unit um, you, you, uh, or if you're in a nuclear power plant or a chemical process facility uh, in a hospital, you're kind of a control operator in that sense. And this came out of a, a work that's being published in a few months. But what I like about that is your environment is safe and you're containing the technology, you're containing the situation, and any deviance from the rules may cause it not to be contained. That's, the, that's what happened at Three Mile Island. That's what happens when people don't follow the rules and people get infected in the hospital. Um, law enforcement officers who don't follow the rules precisely with a suspect and they end up um, getting hurt. And so in a, a fairly controlled standard situation, HRO works in rules and then are you following the rules or did that leak out? The other HRO is the emergency responder that these authors talked about. And in that situation, it's already escaped. It's a dynamic situation. It's changing as you go. You have to engage it before you know what's going on. And, and there, the discrepancies are, um, am I containing this or not? Is it, is it getting worse? And so we want to separate those two out because a lot of people will cover, it's easy to understand or easier to understand the uh, uh, controlled situation with a safe environment. I can have rules. I can set it up that way. I, the environment's not so important. I have a hierarchy. You salute your officers. You follow the orders, and everything's fine. We don't fall apart. Um, and it's easy for those people to come out there and tell us what to do because they've not been in the environment where it is high risk, where you get hurt if you make a decision, and if you don't you get hurt if you don't make a decision. In, in that environment, we don't have as much voice because the academics aren't in there. They stand outside and watch. They don't know what it's like to try to make a decision when you don't have enough information. The information you do have is unreliable, and you have no time to think. 
And that type of HRO is different. The principles are the same, but you have to be taught separately. You have to act separately. And what marks an HRO, really, if you think about it, is that ability not to transition from one to the other. It's an actual rapid shift. And one minute you'll be one way, and the next minute you'll be another way. All right, we're going to divide this podcast up into three parts. So this will be the end of part one. Part two, we'll start with us talking to Dave about the five principles of HRO and operating within ambiguity and chaos. Thanks.